1: Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukye, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show, the physicist and writer Leonard Miladno discusses what it means to be elastic.
2: At the other end of the spectrum is elastic thinking, thinking in which you don't follow rules, you invent the rules.
1: And can artificial intelligence-infused robots perform the hardest thing known to mankind? Assembling IKEA furniture.
3: What the researchers did was they went out and they bought an IKEA chair and tried to see if they could get the robots to put the thing together.
1: But first, the most ambitious search for alien worlds is scheduled to begin with the launch of NASA's newest planet-hunting spacecraft – the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS for short. TESS is hitching a ride aboard a Falcon 9, a rocket made by Elon Musk's SpaceX, and it'll be looking at the closest 200,000 stars to Earth. I'm joined by Professor Sarah Seeger, an astrophysicist and planetary scientist at MIT, and the Deputy Science Director of TESS, to look at the spacecraft and what it is hoping to discover. Hello, Professor Seeger. Hi. Hey, so tell us, what is it hoping to find?
4: Well, TESS is hoping to find thousands of more exoplanets, planets orbiting stars other than our sun.
1: Okay. Why do we care about this?
4: Well, you know, people have always wondered about the stars, literally for thousands of years, at least since the time of the ancient Greek philosophers. We really care because we want to know what is out there.
1: How long is it going to take to see if something is out there?
4: Well, just to manage expectations, I mean, this is like a generations-long endeavor, really. And TESS is one of the first parts of it.
1: Why do we need to put a satellite to search for these worlds? Why can't we just do it here on Earth?
4: Well, believe it or not, we do it here on Earth. But Earth is incredibly limited by our atmosphere. Our atmosphere has a giant blurring effect. It's like, have you ever swam in the bottom of a swimming pool and looked up? And you see, like, giant blotches? Our atmosphere is kind of like that swimming pool for astronomy. And it makes stars twinkle, and we just, we can't get precise measurements. A tiny telescope in space does way better than a big one on the ground for this type of measurement.
1: So why is this spacecraft better than the ones that have preceded it?
4: Well, it's not better, actually. It's just different. And it's like, you know, you can listen to a podcast, or you can read the newspaper, or read a magazine, or look at the Internet. This particular niche of TESS, actually, is is what's better. It's niche. And TESS is designed to look at the nearest stars nearby stars, which are spread out all across the sky. So TESS actually, it's got four identical cameras, think of them like glorified telephoto lenses, and they're actually quite small like compared to the Hubble Space Telescope or others.
1: But it's looking for a lot, I consider it a lot, 200,000 seems like a lot, of these exoplanets, and they're really far away.
4: Well, the stars are tens to hundreds of light-years away. Our nearest stars are four light-years away. But the further out you go, the more stars there are, so let's call it hundreds of light years. And a light year is six trillion miles, so these are tens to hundreds of trillions of miles.
1: Sarah, it's so far away that there's no chance to actually put a space probe even in the vicinity of of these exoplanets. What would be the practical knowledge that we might get from learning about whether there's water or life on these planets, or is this simply science for science's sake?
4: This is almost entirely science for science's sake. We just hope to try to understand, in part, how did our Earth get here? How did our solar system form and evolve? Are there other planetary systems like ours? So far, we haven't found any. And so we're really just trying to understand what's out there. What are planets like? May any of them possibly host life? Do any of them probably host life?
1: What are we hoping to find? Is the question life, or is it simply water, or is it simply temperature?
4: We have a sort of tiered level of hopes and expectations. (laughs) So initially, TESS is just going to find planets. It's like a phone book or an address book or a catalog in almost like a ranked order of which are the best planets to follow up in more detail. And so we hope to find planets that later on we can follow up with the James Webb Space Telescope, for example, and look for, yeah, water vapor. In the atmosphere, which would indicate water oceans, and water is needed for all life as we know it. So I'd say water on a small rocky planet is the first thing we want to see.
1: Professor Seeger, good luck and thank you very much.
4: Great talking to you.
1: Next up, I'm joined here in the studio by the multi-talented Leonard Mladenow. Now Leonard is a theoretical physicist, he's also a best-selling author, and he's also a screenwriter. Among his books are Subliminal and The Trunkard's Walk, and two with the late Professor Stephen Hawking, including The Grand Design. His new book is Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, and it looks at how people can change the way that they think and change some of the outcomes in their lives. So joining me now in the studio is Leonard. Hello, and welcome to Babbage.
2: Hi, glad to be here.
1: So first, you have to explain to us, what do you mean by elastic thinking?
2: Well, you could put human thought on a spectrum, and at one end is logical, analytical thinking. That's the kind of thinking where you start with a certain premise, and then you use rules to get from A to B to C and so on until you've solved your problem or figured out what you're trying to figure out. At the other end of the spectrum is elastic thinking, thinking in which you don't follow rules, you invent the rules, or you understand what rules you're following, because we often follow rules that we're not even conscious of, or it's, it's when you decide to break the rules. So while analytical thinking might be how you figure out how to get from home to work, elastic thinking is how you figure out what's the best job for you.
1: Now, there must be a third category here, because to get from home to work really isn't analytical thinking either. As you point out in the introduction of your book, you simply do that without thinking.
2: But you often do things without thinking at all. That's correct. People sometimes call that scripted thinking or fixed action patterns. That's autopilot. So once you've figured out how to get to work and you've done it a few times, you start doing it without thinking and you're on autopilot. One of the th- things that I recommend in the book is that you increase your degree of mindfulness so that you know when you're doing things on, in an unconscious way. And, and you understand what assumptions are, your thinking is based on. And you learn how to examine that and decide that you can use elastic thinking when appropriate.
1: Okay. So let's talk about elastic thinking when appropriate. What exactly is it? Can you give some examples of elastic thinking?
2: Sure. Suppose I gave you a riddle. Margie and Judy were born on the same year, the same month, and the same day of the same mother, and yet they're not twins. What's going on? So in order to solve that, like many problems in life, and in our professional world, the solution is actually fairly easy once you understand the assumptions that you made and how they have to be changed. Once you understand what your framework of packing the problem is, then the actual analytical thinking you need to solve the problem is pretty trivial. In this case, for instance, the answer is they're triplets. And what's stopping you from solving that problem is the image you have in your mind of two girls or two women. And that image precludes the idea that they're triplets, but once you realize that you're making that assumption, the answer is easy.
1: Now, in the case of elastic thinking, no one can read the book and not think about the fact that there's computers now doing some of the thinking, artificial intelligence and machine learning is going everywhere. Yet you believe there's something special about the way that humans come up with their thoughts that's so different than the way that the computer does. And you lay this out very nicely in the book. Describe it to us.
2: Well, so computers apply logical, analytical thinking, linear thinking. They work according to algorithms. So scientists call that top-down. Top-down means that there's a boss, a CEO, or executive structures in your brain that are guiding your focus, your goals, and pushing you in a certain direction. And that works for many problems, but for really tough problems or for situations where things have changed, you need the other kind, and that's called bottom-up. Bottom-up thinking is the kind of processing that happens in an ant colony. Each ant, as an individual, has a very simple program, a fixed script that it follows. When do you turn right, when do you turn left, or move up or down, or whatever you're doing? The ant has a very simple program for that. And yet, when you have thousands and thousands of ants together in a colony, they do amazing things. For instance, if they're moving along in a certain direction, they reach a crevice, they'll build a bridge over it. There's no designer of the bridge, there's no architect, and there's no boss telling each ant what to do. But somehow, the whole is greater than the sum of all these individual programs. Your brain is made of neurons that do the same thing. So each neuron has a very simple program in terms of when to fire and and, and what to do. And yet, when you put the billions of neurons together, they equal us, our ideas, everything that we think of. That's bottom-up thinking. Your brain operates in both ways. It has macroscopic structures that focus the brain and execute a certain top-down guidance. And it has bottom-up thinking that creates ideas. And when you combine those two together, you get the kind of inventions and innovation and, and thoughts, thinking patterns that we can have. But if you're too far balanced on the logical, rational side, you'll never have anything original or you'll never question what you have.
1: Now, I think most people are going to ask the question to themselves, listening not only to about the book, but about your biography, how does one write a book with Stephen Hawking? How did that come about? <laughs>
2: Well, Stephen uh, read one of my books, and he contacted me and asked if I wanted to work with him. I think he liked my writing, and he liked the fact that I'm a physicist and what he, he someone who could understand his work. Which book did he read? My first book, Euclid's Window, which was uh, about curved space and what it means. Uh, and uh, we ended up then writing the book that became A Briefer History of Time, and that was a simplified version of his a Brief History of Time. But after that, we had fun working together, so we decided to write The Grand Design, which was about his latest work. And that was an amazing experience. I mean, he is, talk about elastic thinkers. He is, he is the ultimate elastic thinker back when he wrote A Brief History of Time people thought that could never succeed it was too technical people did not write technical science books for the general public back then he was in the last just like Mary Shelley was when she invented Frankenstein it was a new idea in Stephen's case an idea people said it wouldn't work nobody wanted to know about black holes even physicists weren't that interested in black holes when he started studying them but he said why is that maybe it doesn't have to be and he changed things he certainly did
1: Leonard thank you very much
2: thank you it's been fun
1: You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. What are your thoughts on being elastic or searching for exoplanets? Tell us in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, in a paper just published in Science Robotics, a group of researchers at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore have managed to get a pair of robots to assemble a piece of flat pack furniture. Oh, so easy for Leonardo. Joining me in the studio to put it all together is Tim Cross, the Economist's Science Correspondent. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. So, Tim, how do robots assemble furniture?
3: Apparently slowly and with a great deal of care, and it needs two of them. So, as you say, this is a new paper pushing back the boundaries of robotics, and what the researchers did was they went out and they bought an IKEA chair. Um, It was a Stefan chair for anyone who wants to try this at home. Then took it out of the box and presented it to a pair of robot arms, the sort of industrial robots you see in factories and so on, and tried to see if they could get the robots to put the thing together.
1: So were the robots actually programmed on how to put it together? How else was the robot trained to know what to do?
3: They actually needed quite a bit of help from the humans in a way that you talked about chess, you talked about Go, a lot of the recent advances in sort of automation and robotics and AI, the point has been to take humans out of the loop and to show that machines can do things without, you know, too much in the way of human handholding. You needed quite a lot here. So the scientists had to specify the sequence of what the robot should do. So they would say things like, you know, take the dowel, uh, put it in the top left hole, spin the frame of the chair around, grab another dowel, put it in, then put it down, go and do this. They could do that in sort of high-level language, pretty much of the sort I just used. And then the robot arms themselves would figure out how to translate that into the sort of necessary sequence of movements. And so you had these two robot arms. You had a 3D camera, which was sort of surveying the scene and was responsible for working out where the various bits of the chair were. And eventually, after a bit of trial and error, they managed to get them to put the frame of the chair together successfully. But what's interesting and what's striking about this is it's so different from a lot of the other sort of robotics and AI papers we've seen. So you mentioned things like Go and it seems to us really impressive that a machine can beat a human at something as as complicated as that. And for all the joking, you know, putting together an IKEA chair, especially this one, is not actually that difficult and most sort of semi-competent adults could probably do it fairly easily. It took the robots more than 20 minutes to do this. Nine minutes of that was them sitting there trying to work out how to translate the commands the humans had given them into kind of commands they could understand. What that kind of shows is one of the limits of AI. So there's this thing called Moravec's paradox, which AI researchers have known about for a while, which basically says that things that we think are hard, like playing chess or doing differential calculus or whatever, actually aren't hard and they're easy. They're easy problems to solve. And things that we can do kind of effortlessly, like moving through the physical world and manipulating it, are really, really difficult. And that's why we have all these super brainy computers, you know, thrashing us at chess, But getting a robot to navigate a cluttered room is really, really hard. And they bump into things and fall over.
1: So this experiment has shown that AI has a problem moving and navigating in the physical world. Are you saying this is a problem that will take decades to solve?
3: So a lot of the excitement about AI is around machine learning and sort of efficient ways to, to learn what you're supposed to do and to get machines to program them to do things that we can't figure out how to tell them and so on. And that definitely helps with the question of moving in, in the physical world. I just think it's it's a hard problem. I'm not saying we'll never solve it, but I think we'll solve you know, the abstract stuff first. Moravec's paradox is the basic reason behind a lot of the, the sort of slightly less hypey forecasts that say... If you're a financial analyst, you should maybe worry about your job being automated. If you're a barber or a delivery truck driver, then maybe you shouldn't worry quite as much because your job involves lots of sort of dexterous physical movement and navigating through a complicated world. And there's no reason in principle why machines can't do that. And I'm sure we'll solve it eventually. But within the next 10 years, I doubt it.
1: Tim, what if you're a podcast host? What then?
3: Well, I think at this point, we should probably just reveal to the listeners that the reason we don't have bylines at The Economist is everyone here is just a brain in a vat. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And some of us have bigger brains than others. And my small little shriveled up chestnut says, Tim, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. If you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for an offer of 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Couquier In London, this is The Economist.